So the question I got was this. Did Jesus begin at his birth in Bethlehem? And it was when I was in Haiti about a month ago and I was teaching a pastor's conference and a young man asked that question. And, of course, you know, I was going through a translator. So he asked the question and a whole bunch of people kind of looked at him. And so the translator asked, you know, basically brought that question. So I was getting prepared to answer that question. And before I could even answer the question, uh, a couple of older gentlemen stood up, pastors stood up, and began to speak to this young man. And uh, so I finally said, well, what was this question? <laughs> what did he ask? And it was, it was this question here. So they went, uh, they went on for about five minutes, and the, the translator was telling me what they were saying to him a little bit. And so um, I finally just said, uh, when they got done, uh, I finally said... Uh, it's important for us to find from the scripture what it says about this. So I turned, I asked them to turn to John chapter two, uh, chapter one, and I'm going to ask you to do the same thing uh, this weekend. Uh, John chapter one, it's on page 809. If you don't have a Bible, we have these chair Bibles, and they work great. And uh, John chapter one, I'm going to read verses one and two, and then verse 14, because I think this passage answers that young man's question and this is what it says this is john chapter 1 verse 1 uh, and page 809 in in the beginning the word already existed the word was with god and the word was god he existed in the beginning with god so we have to figure out who this word is what this word is But we're told, John tells us in verse 14, So the Word became human and made His home among us. He was full full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So here we have, not only does it say that He was in the the beginning with the Father, but if you read a little further in John, Uh, In the first few verses, he says, all things were made by him. So he's the one who is behind the creation. He is the one who is before creation. And so that absolutely answers the young man's uh, question. Now, the reason that we, we talk about doctrine, and some people say, well, doctrine seems boring. It seems irrelevant to my daily life. Uh, but it's really significantly important because it answers the most important questions we have about God, about Jesus, about us, about the world we live in, about where if there is an eternal life. Uh, all those questions are answered. So what we've been doing in this series is we've been going through and looking at each part of, uh, just a part each week of the, the EFCA statement of faith, the, the free church statement of faith. So we talked about God week one. We talked about the Word of God, the Bible, uh, last week. This week we want to talk about what, uh, what does the EFCA statement say about Jesus Christ? What is the statement that it makes about Jesus Christ? So I want to read that to you right now. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived the sinless life and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, 
He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. So that's a mouthful, and we're not going to unpack every part of that because there's, there's hundreds of verses that go into that statement. But what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to turn to uh, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to spend most of our time here tonight. It's on page 900. And the reason we're going there is because it is probably one of the most robust statements about Jesus Christ in all of the New Testament. And it's very practical to our lives as we unpack this. So I want to read this passage, and I think I made reference to it a couple of weeks ago. I want to mention it again. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 3 on page 900. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others, too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the human position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think I mentioned to you last week, or the week I mentioned this passage, that sometimes uh, the, the, the formatting of this in the Bible is in a poetic form. And it's because many people believe this was an early confession of the church. But the, the thing I want you to see this weekend is this. The incarnation, and we use the word incarnation, and incarnation simply means this, that God became human. That's simply what it means. That God became human. The incarnation means that God became a man. Now what difference does the incarnation make? What difference does it make that God became a man? I can't give you all the reasons, but let me give you a few uh, implications on why that's important. The first one is this. The incarnation means that God loves us enough to intervene. Some people are struggling with suffering and 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 pain and, and difficult things, and they wonder, does God know? Does God understand? Does God care? The incarnation is one of the most powerful statements that God cares and understands what we're going through. The interesting thing about this is the Bible says two things at the same time about God and ultimately about Jesus. Uh, number one, it says that God is above and beyond His creation. He transcends His creation. He's beyond it. But the other thing that we're told is not only does he transcend his creation, but he's also intimately engaged. He's, he's up. And that's what the incarnation says, that God isn't just above and beyond his creation. He's intimately engaged with his creation. And so what, what, is, what could God do more than become a human being in this world and live in this world with the limitations of this world to prove that he understands what we're going through. So God became one of us, essentially, is what it comes down to. And that's why 
Paul says in Philippians 2, 6, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The word here in the Greek is uh, morphe, and we get this uh, morph, you know, you morphed into this, you morphed into that, that's the idea. Uh, but English isn't necessarily what it means in, in the original languages. But what, what this means in Greek, this word morph, it means it, it's what makes a per, it makes uh, the, it's the very essence of something. In other words, Jesus was not created. He's not a lesser, lesser than God. He is the very substance, the very essence of God, the very being of God. Paul is saying that Jesus is equal with the Father, the very essence of the Father. He's not lower than he's not a lower God and he's not created by the Father. And there are many teachings out there and many cults out there that say that Jesus was a, uh, was a created being. This adamantly says, no, he was not a created being. He is equal with God. And that's what this confession says. The other thing, the word it uses, it says he didn't grasp or use to his advantage. In other words, he's saying, Paul's saying that Jesus was equal with God, but he didn't choose to hold on to it. Jesus was equal to God, but he did not, he, he, he was willing he was fully God, equal to the Father, but he was willing to let it go. And then we're going to talk more about what that means. Now, in that day, in the Roman world, in the Greek world, in the, the Jewish world, the Hebrew world, uh, the idea that God, uh, for God to enter creation was unheard of. Uh, there, were, there were, you know, the Greeks had their gods, so to speak, so did the Romans. Uh, but Jesus entered as a servant. And, and he didn't just enter as a full-grown human being. He entered as an, as an infant, as a child, as a baby, a vulnerable and helpless human. He took on the limitations of human flesh. And the most amazing thing is why he did it. He did it for you and for me. He became vulnerable for you and for me. He got off of his throne and was born in a manger, in a, in, a, in a backwater town to an unknown family. There was no fanfare. There were no parades. There was no celebration. And all through his life, basically his birth, his, 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 uh, who he was was always questioned. Now, What this confession is telling us is it says it's telling us that Jesus wasn't a created being. He was God who took on himself human flesh. Now, there are some today who would say, well, but here's the problem. And, and this is going to be you're going to hear more of this in the years to come. More and more people are going to say, but this is just a legend. This is just a myth. Jesus never claimed to be God. This this wasn't what he would have wanted. He would be aghast at this if he heard about it. Uh, and, and I want to push back on that a little bit. In other words, what they're saying is it's just like a grandpa who went out and uh, caught a fish, right? And, and when he first caught it and brought it in, it was like an eight-inch fish. But now, after the years, it's, it's like the biggest fish, and it, he's got a record for the state, you know? And, and that's kind of what they're trying to do with this story. Of, they're saying... That just happens. You know, real things, the real historical Jesus was real and historical. But, but the legend, the, the myth just grew and grew and grew. 
But here's the problem, and, and there's many problems, but there's, but there's one major problem with this view. Many scholars are convinced that this passage they just read, specifically verses 6 through 11 of chapter 2 of Philippians, was an early confession or hymn in poetic form. That this was an early confession of the church. What do I, what, why does that make a difference? Well, they, they believe that either Paul wrote this or he may have borrowed it and included it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it's not really, that's not really the issue. This means that within years of Jesus' death, this was the belief of everyone around about Jesus. This wasn't a legend. Uh, we know that Paul wrote his letters within 20 years of, his, uh, of Jesus' death. The very earliest followers knew that Jesus claimed to be God. Therefore, it was a. It would. In other words, the point is, if this if this wasn't true, if he didn't rise from the dead, if he didn't perform these miracles, if he didn't cast out demons, if he didn't do any of that stuff, there were hundreds and hundreds of witnesses that could have said that didn't happen. That never happened. What do we see instead? We see the disciples and their lives are transformed, changed. Um, so very early the people people were alive to give witness either for or against the claims they could have disproved it Paul says this and I made reference to that last weekend in 1 Corinthians 15 he says you know the resurrection you know, Jesus appeared to more than you know, hundreds of people at one time so it wasn't a delusion they didn't all have a delusion they all saw the resurrected Jesus and in fact Paul is basically saying, and they're alive today, and I can give you their names, you can go talk to them. They were in the crowd that day when that happened. In other words, this isn't a myth, this isn't a legend, this is something that actually happened. Second thing is this, is the Jews would would have been the last to believe that a human being could be the transcendent creator. In other words, transcendent again just means he's above and beyond. That God created the heavens and the earth and transcends. He's more powerful. He's over it. And for the Jew to believe that a transcendent God would enter into his creation and become a, a human, frail uh, human being is just beyond their comprehension. They, they, they couldn't have made it up. They would have been the last ones to see God becoming a man. Now, the Romans and the Greeks could have kind of accept something like that, but not the Jews. Not the Jews. Here's the point. Jesus claimed to be God, and He proved it by His life and His words. He taught like no one ever. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. He welcomed the little children. He challenged the religious leaders of His day. And He rose from the dead on the third day. And here's the point. You can't just take parts that you like and throw out the parts that you don't like. You can't just say, I like Jesus as a, as a good moral teacher, but I don't like the idea that He's God. I don't like the idea that He rose on the dead. I don't like the idea that He performed miracles. I don't like that. Well, you don't get the choice of choosing that. And let me give you one other. You don't get the choice of choosing what part of the Word of God you think is right and the other parts you think are wrong. Because what does that mean? That means what you've just done is you've just said, the Word of God is not the final authority. I am. And that's the problem. Because my guess is that if everybody does that, we're going to have multiple versions of what the Word of God, what it is and what it isn't. You say, well, I don't like that story, so that's not part of the Word of God. So if you're not sure about that, 
Listen to the message from last weekend where I talked about the authority of the Scripture. You, no, the point I just want you to see is this. There's plenty of evidence, historical evidence, that Jesus lived and performed these, these miracles. This is, not, this is not myth. This is not legend. This is his history. Here's the second thing. And, and the point I want you to see is this. The incarnation means that Jesus entered into and became a human, which means he loves us because he did it to come as a rescue mission for us. Secondly, the incarnation means that we now have an eternal hope. Because Jesus came to rescue us, we have a hope that goes beyond the grave. We should be filled with hope no matter what our circumstances. You see, Jesus was not just a man. He is God incarnate, come to earth to save his people from their sins. He's not just a well-meaning person. He's our Savior. Now, what Paul says is very interesting. He says, Change your mind. Do you know a big part of our lives is, is choosing what we're going to think? He says in verse 5, you must have the same attitude or the same mindset that Jesus had. Did Jesus have a positive mindset? I think he did. I think he did. Uh, what, how do we maintain a positive mindset when life gives us just... Dumb things, things that we don't want, things that we don't know whether we can handle. Well, turn over for a moment because I want you to see this. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 8 on page 863. This is something that you'll say, okay, I get that, I understand that, but it's hard to do. And it is, it's very hard to do, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, and with the help of the power of God, we can do this. But we have to change our mindset. We have to think like Jesus thought and thinks. Page 863, uh, I'm at verse 31. And then I'm going to read verses 31 and 32 and then 38 through 39. What shall we say about the, such wonderful things of, 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 as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up, for us, won't he also give us everything else? That's an argument from greater to le- uh, you know, uh, greater to lesser. And and I always I've said this. Uh, I think I said it a week ago that if you can get past creation in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Every other miracle is pretty small. And so that's the argument Paul's making here. If, if, if he's saying here, he says, if God gave you His own Son, Would he hold anything else back? And the answer is no, absolutely not. See, again, we're going to the place of saying, how does the incarnation that Jesus entered into humanity, that God gave his son, how should it affect our everyday life when we go through trials and tribulations? Paul is essentially saying is, if God didn't spare his son, that must have some implication to our day-to-day lives. If God is for us, then who could ever be against us? That must have some implications about our day-to-day lives. And here are those implications. Look at verse 38. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Anybody worried about tomorrow? See, what Paul is saying is, this theology of Jesus coming, becoming human has implications for our lives here 
And now, if you're worried, it means your mind isn't set on the right thing. You're not thinking right. And Paul says, but when your mind is set, that you know that God is for you, that He's never going to be against you, that He didn't even spare His Son for you, then you know that whatever worries you have about tomorrow are small change compared to the love and the commitment that God has made to you. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God as revealed in, uh, in Christ Jesus our Lord. What I'm suggesting here is that we should be some of the most optimistic people about our future, because God sent His Son to save us. Paul had this eternal hope, even in hardship, because he knew that God was for him, that He had His back, that He had an eternal plan for him. And that's the only way you're going to find hope in this world. Because you're going to get bad news this week. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe you won't. But <laughs> Wait, what does he know that I don't know? <laughs> But, you know, unfortunately, that's, that's life. But basically, Paul said, you can hold your head up, you can have hope, because you know there's an eternal hope going on. And, and my point is, I think we need to be like a cork in the storms of life. It might dip below the waters, but the hope that we have, this eternal hope that we have, that God entered into our world, that He loves us so much that He entered into our world and willingly became the Savior that we all needed. If if God showed that kind of love that He would send His Son, and if Jesus showed that kind of commitment to us that He was willing to give His life, everything else that we worry about is pretty small. I, I think that's what Paul's saying there in Romans. And, and, and what Paul's saying is, if you're worried about tomorrow, you're not thinking right. You, you don't have that that heavenly hope mindset number three the incarnation demonstrates to us that matter matters it's not a misprint notice what he says philippians 2 6 he says who being in the very nature god now paul is saying something really significant here theologically as you look at the tenses and all he's saying he's here's what he's not saying he's not saying having been god he then also became human in other words Jesus was God, but then when he became a man, he exchanged his godness for his humanness, or he exchanged his deity for his humanity. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying this, having been God, he also became human. So he didn't, he wasn't one or the other, it was both and. He was both God and man at the same time. That's, that's what he's saying. He became the God-man. He became human. He took upon himself the limitations of human flesh. The point here is that Jesus is not a ghost. He's not a spirit. And if you read the early part, I think it's chapter 1 of 1 John, it says this, We have seen him with our eyes. We have hugged him. It doesn't say that, but it gives the idea that we grasp him with our hands. In other words, he's not a ghost. We grabbed onto him. We hugged him. We touched him. We felt him. He was Human. He was matter. He was. He had entered in. He wasn't just a a a, a vision. He wasn't just a ghost or a, a spirit. He was flesh. Um, the point is, Jesus was not a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. He was a physical man, a baby born in Bethlehem with the same physical limitations that we have. Do you remember in John chapter four? Maybe you don't. Jesus was walking with his disciples, and they were going up 
and they stopped in Samaria at a well. And Jesus sat down for he was weary. He got tired. Some cultures believe, you know, in this area of physical matter, they believe that the physical part is evil or bad or useless. The Greeks had this view, and they saw the body as evil, and they claimed that uh, it was the prison house of the soul. So at death, your soul, your spirit is set free from the body, and you begin to experience... And, and that, by the way, that truth is still held in many parts of the world today. In the East, though, matter is seen as an illusion. The real is the spiritual. The incarnation, though, means that the spiritual is not more important than the physical, and the physical is not important, more important than the, the spiritual. Our God is the only God that de- demonstrates by His incarnation that matter matters. Now, there's a couple things I want to say about this really quickly. The first one is this. Sometimes Christians get all spiritual about things. And they think that this, the spiritual maturity is all about um, that there's something spiritually going on with me. Do you want to know something? Spirituality has a lot to do with your body. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, present your bodies to the Lord as a spiritual sacrifice. He says, present your members, the parts of your body, to God. Use them for good, not for evil. So spirituality has a lot to do with your body, with your tongue, with your eyes, with your hands, with your feet. It's all tied in. So sometimes I get Christians and I talk to them and it's all about the spiritual they want to have the spirit, and a lot of it is there's a lot of physical tied into the spirit, the Christian life. Uh, we do these uh, study sermon study guides, and then we, we're going to talk a little bit more about that as you go in this week. If you're interested, you can get those on the website. They're, it's available right now, and you can look at there's some questions and some passages that just talk what, I, what I'm mentioning right now. But I just want to let you know that we do that uh, sermon guide and. Uh, it's a great opportunity, whether it's a small group or if you want to individually use that, to go a little deeper into the, what we're talking about that I don't have time to go on uh, right now. Now, so why is this important? Why is this whole idea that matter matters? Here's a couple of real practical ones. Because that means there's going to be hugging in heaven. Do you like to get hugged? Some of you go, no, not really. Please don't. <laughs> Others of you go, you know, I mean, there, there are some of you like, if I see you, I know, okay, it's, it's hug time, right? It's just going to happen. <laughs> but, but some of you are going, yeah. Some of you are going, oh, I don't know. Well, okay, hang in there. There's also going to be music and singing in heaven. There's going to be food and celebration in heaven. Uh, we're going to have bodies in heaven. Uh, in the beginning, God created a perfect environment for uh, Adam and Eve and uh, created a sanctuary almost, and they were the caretakers of his sanctuary, and uh, they blew it, obviously. And so what does God do at the end? He creates a new sanctuary, a new heaven, and a new earth. Earth. Okay, it's not a spiritual earth. It's, a, it's going to be physical. There's going to be a, a new heaven and a new earth and a new city, uh, and you're going to see all of that. So it begins with a garden and it begins, it ends with a new physical uh, heaven and earth, right? Because he became human, he understands. So, so that's the first thing is that we're going to have 
You know, uh, one view of death is you die and your soul just goes into the energy of the universe. One view is that you die and you, you're dead, you're done. Christianity says no, when you, when you, when you uh, die, you rise. Your soul and your spirit, your, your body are joined together and you, your memories are intact and you, begin, you, you recognize the people that you lived, your family members, and you rejoice because there's this family reunion and, and that's the hope of heaven. The other thing is, the other truth about the, the incarnation is because he became human, he understands what you're going through. Now this, I don't have time to go into this. Again, the study guide goes into that a little bit more. I want to ask you a question. Are you lonely? Have you been lonely lately? Are you misunderstood? Have you been betrayed? Have you not had your prayer answered? Have you experienced pain and suffering? And He has done it all. He has done it all. It has all happened to Jesus. Turn over for a moment to Hebrews chapter 4. This is on page 922. Page 922. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. This is what uh, the writer of Hebrews says. This is Hebrews 4, verse 14. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Now, notice what he says here. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. How does he understand our weaknesses? If God never was incarnated, if he never became man, how in the world could we understand? Have you ever had somebody where you're t- they're telling you a story and you say, I know what you're going through? And they go, really? When did you ever go through what I just went through? You go, well, no. And, you can, and they go, you don't know what I'm going through. Well, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of this, our same testings, We do, yet he did not sin. Did he ever have a prayer unanswered? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you will take this from me. Has he ever been betrayed? He's been betrayed. Judas betrayed him. All of his disciples ran. They said, we'll stand, we'll die with you. And they ran. He faced all of the testings we do, yet with, he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of, of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. One last thing. We'll close with this. The incarnation demonstrates the path of salvation. Look at the path that Jesus took to get our salvation. He went from his throne to a cross. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, became a servant. He made himself nothing. He found, he, being found as a human, he died on a cross as a criminal. Now, many people today think the path of salvation is to go up. And what I mean by that is they think it's, well, I need to work hard. I need to try harder. I need to measure up. I need to be good enough. But here's what, what, what the gospel really says. The gospel says that when you stop saving, trying to save yourselves, then you, you open the door for God to save you. 
So stop trying to save yourself. Let God save you. Only when we come to a place and we say, I deserve to be lost, Lord, save me because of what Jesus did, not by what I have tried to do. Only then will God lift us up. The path of salvation is not trying to build ourselves up. It is acknowledging that we are lost. We are helpless. It is to go down. It's to humble ourselves. Jesus went down and he was lifted up. Notice the last part of that hymn that we read in Philippians. It says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus found his name by giving it up. He was lifted up by going down. That's not how we, uh, not, it's not only how we find forgiveness and salvation. It's the path of the Christian life. Jesus, you think about this, I don't have time to go into this, but Jesus basically demonstrated incredible power while he worked here on earth. And some people say, well, that was easy. He was God. He took upon himself the limitations of human flesh, though. And, And the question is, why don't we do the same works or similar works? Like, and by the way, how did Jesus do that? The Jesus said, I get my strength, I get my power, I get my wisdom, I get everything from my Father in heaven. I don't speak my words, I speak the words of my Father in heaven. In other words, he has had such a close relationship and he relied so much on the power of God. And you could see the power of his Father in and through him. That's why Jesus says this in John chapter 14. You don't have to turn there. I have the verse, uh, the page number and the verses on the screen. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. You could ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now, number one, that's not a blank credit card to say, you know, God, give me a new car, or the best job that's not because you think about it. What did Jesus do when he came to earth? What it, it wasn't about him. It was about others. It was about us. So that's the first thing. If you're all directing it on yourself, you're not getting the whole humility thing. You're not getting the whole going down thing. Uh, but but the point is, Jesus found his power when he when he humbled himself and he relied totally on the father in heaven. And he says, you will do greater works than these. Well, why aren't we? Why aren't we? I don't think if we're honest, we're not even close to relying upon, uh, uh, we're not even close to what Jesus did as he relied upon his Father in heaven, drawing the power from, from God. So I don't know where you're at today. But I do know this. There were two criminals on either side of Jesus. And they were both heckling him. But at the end, uh, the one criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you get into, uh, go to your father. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. The Bible tells us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not building a resume. It's not trying to be good enough, try harder, work hard enough. It's not about that. You call upon the Lord. And the question I want to leave you with is this, this weekend. Has there ever been a time where you said, Jesus, I'm lost. I do not deserve salvation. I have no hope. You're my last. That's what the criminal basically said. You're my only hope. You're my last hope. You're my only hope. And he said, Jesus, save me. Have you ever done that? 
The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He, what did the criminal do? He just put his faith in Jesus and he called upon Jesus. I'm a criminal. I'm guilty. He, you know, he said to his pal, he said, you know, we deserve to be here. We're guilty. He's innocent. The same is true for you and me. He's innocent. We are guilty. We're the sinners. He's the Savior. The incarnation means that Jesus invaded, became a human being on a mission to save us. And he came over 2,000 years ago so that maybe this weekend you would give your life to him and you would find that forgiveness that you can only get through Jesus. I'd like to make it harder. I'd like to say you have to join the church, you have to tithe, you have to do, you, you know, all, do all this stuff, you have to serve so many hours per month. And I can't do that. The bottom line says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you ever done that? How can we possibly just talk about Jesus becoming a man on a mission to save us from sin and not offer you an opportunity to trust Jesus as Savior? So I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. But maybe this weekend is the weekend that you're going to give your heart and life to Jesus. And he's going to begin, you're going to begin a journey with him and he's going to begin to change your life from the inside out. Would you bow your heads and allow me to pray and we'll just close. Father, it may be that there are some here that have never crossed that line of faith. They've never called upon the Lord. And this weekend is, is it's today. It's now. Today is the day of salvation for them. They understand that you came, uh, you sent your Son, and that Jesus gave his life willingly so that we could be saved. He humbled himself to be born as a baby in a manger, to take all sorts of abuse, to be rejected, to be beaten and brutalized and ultimately executed as a criminal on a cross so that we could be saved. Father, uh, everyone in this audience is one of those two criminals. We are either the one criminal that, as far as we know, never came to a place of repentance, of acknowledging their sin, to continue to question Jesus or not know about Jesus or even mock Him. Or were the criminal that said, help. Father, it may be that there are some here today that say, help. And a prayer like this would be a reflection of their heart. And if it is, just in your own heart, pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I realize that I am a sinner. That you came, became a man so that you could live the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. And I don't deserve this. I can never earn it. It is a gift. And if I've never called upon you, I call upon you now to come into my life and be my Savior. You gave your life for me. Now I give my life to you. In Jesus' name. And Father, if, if anybody prayed that prayer, I just pray they'd let somebody know, maybe somebody they came with, or maybe a family member or a friend that maybe invited them, but that they would let someone know because your word tells us that he who confesses me or she who confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. Pretty, pretty important stuff. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you that he entered into our world, was brutalized by it, was misunderstood by it, was slandered by it, was ultimately executed by it. He entered into his own creation. And his own creation didn't recognize it. But all who believed in Him, He gave the right to become the sons and daughters of God. 
I pray there be many sons and daughters in this audience this weekend. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.